off in chapter 3, verse 1. Let's go ahead and read the text. Um, We're going to read up to his dream, not including his dream. It says, Now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall all around Jerusalem. Meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. Now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great place, great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? And that's where we're going to probably add to. We're also going to jump a little bit farther ahead. But let's have a word of prayer before we get into this section of Scripture. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for the opportunity to look in your word tonight. And we pray for wisdom, that you might give us insight and understanding, but also that you might find us of a tender heart to not only discern your truth uh, that is revealed here, but also to uh, respond to it by faith believing to the point of uh, allowing it to impact our lives. We pray you might give us wisdom and direction in that regard. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have two events described for us here at the early days of Solomon's reign. Uh, We're not really sure what the time frame is here. Um, In fact, uh, if you look at the Septuagint, there's uh, some discrepancy here. Uh, They have some repetitive information that uh, we're not really sure at what point this happens. It is is evident that it is early on in his kingship. But we have um, two concerns. And the number one is that Solomon makes this treaty with Egypt by marrying Pharaoh's daughter. And of course, we are alarmed, and rightly so, uh, because of the instruction of Israel to be separate from among the nations. And part of that was that they were not to marry nor be given in marriage to the Gentiles. That that was part of maintaining the distinction of Israel. And we, of course, have some idea and knowledge of the future of Solomon in his latter years of his reign, where he makes this a very <laughs> strong pattern, should we say that, of marrying Gentile women, and, and particularly political marriages, and this one seems to be the case, that this was more of a political arrangement, uh, for a peace treaty, if you will, that uh, was very common in the day, and really very common up until almost our more modern era. Uh, it was very common for this to occur, that the best way to keep your neighbors from becoming your enemies is to make sure that you, they make, you, you make them your family, basically. You just make them in-laws. Uh, nowadays, it seems to be the other way around. If you make your neighbors your in-laws, they've made them your enemies sometimes, but uh, that wasn't the intention here. So... We uh, have this treaty laid out, and we have to ask ourselves, you know, what is the foundation of this? Some commentators have even gone to say, well, this is before God gave Solomon wisdom, and therefore, you know, we can question the validity of it or the wisdom of it. But the fact is, is that even after the dream and the promise of God and the evidence of it, Solomon still engaged in these alliances 
and uh, and so you can't discredit this from that perspective. And as we talked about last week, uh, David makes it very clear in his charge to Solomon that Solomon already was known for having some level of wisdom on the part of his father. His father has already identified it. In all your wisdom, you take care of this guy and this guy. Uh, so we've already seen that there is some uh, evidence of already God's working in this young man's life. And so we have issue there, and we're going to address that here in a little bit. Uh, we have further issue of him being involved in the illegitimate, we'll call it that, <coughs> sacrifices in the high places. In fact, they are so legitimate that, of course, later on, one of the evidence of whether you are a good king of, of Judah or not a good king of Judah is whether you allow the high places to stand. But in those contexts, those high places were given over to the sacrifice, not to God, but to Baal and to the Ashtoreths and to false gods of the Canaanites and the Philistines and individuals and, and nations around them. Uh, but here, we obviously have him engaged in something that God has some issue with. Uh, and the way it is expressed tells us that. Um, in verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statue of his father, David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. And so that little except means that God has an issue with it as well. He is not going to commend that. He is not going to honor that. Yet we find that it is in the very place where Solomon offers those that he has this dream. That at the high place, the highest of high places, the great one, not because it was higher elevation, but the greatest of the high places is where he goes to offer these sacrifices. But I want you to notice that he is offering a sacrifice to the God of Israel. He is not offering sacrifice to the Canaanite gods at all. But he is offering it to the God of Israel, and God is going to respond at that place with this dream. And again, we have some concerns. It's like, well, what is this declaring? Is, what is this uh, saying about both Solomon and of God? Is God uh, being a little fickle here? Is he, is he sending, sending us mixed messages of what he loves and what he detests? And again, we want to address that, but I want to just lay those two out right in front, that these are the concerns right off with this uh, early description of Solomon's reign and his, his life, his reigning choices. And so we always focus on the dream and the aftermath of that in his show of wisdom with the uh, two mothers and the one baby. What do you do when you got two moms and one baby and both claim the mom is that they're the mom? And so we spend a lot of time on that, thank you. And uh, we don't always think about uh, what was leading up to this. And I think it is a great study, and that's what we're going to make it tonight, a great study on the grace of God and the mercy of God toward him. And what we find about Solomon, first of all, let's focus on Solomon loved the Lord. 
right? We can sit here and nitpick over the other decisions made, but the character quality that is chosen to describe him is that he loved the Lord, number one. Number two, he walked in the statutes of the David, except for this one issue, that instead of going to the tabernacle with his sacrifices, he went to the high places like many in Israel were doing. And so he loved the Lord, and he was obeying the statutes of his father. And so David had laid out some instructions, and Solomon was following that. We saw the evidence of that in the previous chapter where David says, I want you to take care of this matter and this matter, and Solomon makes it a priority. He is going to fulfill the instructions of his father. And so when we think about the statutes of David, well, go to the Psalms and start realizing what David taught through his Psalms, that he was used of God to instruct Israel in these matters uh, by divine revelation. And so when we see these two descriptions where Solomon loves the Lord and is striving to obey his commands, he is lacking in one area. And we don't find that area emphasized in David's instruction to Solomon. And in fact, uh, we don't find it emphatic um, in Israel in the day, even of the judges. So let's go back and talk about uh, this sacrificing. Hopefully we have a good handle that there were sacrifices offered in other places than just the tabernacle. Remember, that is the place of the Ark of the Covenant this time. There's no temple built. But the Ark has been brought by David to Jerusalem. So the tabernacle is in Jerusalem. So that is the rightful place for specific sacrifices especially. Which ones? Which ones specifically? Really important ones. Annually. Passover. Day of Atonement. Very important ones. Nationally. On an individual basis, Israel was only supposed to go, was commanded to head down there for three occasions to make sacrifices at the tabernacle. Uh, outside of that, though, we do know that there was aspects of worship, including sacrifices, that were around and about. Uh, we see that especially under Samuel. During 1 Samuel, we see Samuel's ministry. What was he doing? What did he do when he went into Bethlehem? Uh, he, had, he was going to offer a sacrifice uh, when he was getting ready to choose David. Remember, he says, well, before we offer this sacrifice, before we do all this, I want you to bring your sons before me. I'm not going to do this until all your sons are here. And he prays all of them except for David. He says, no, none of these are it. Are you sure this is all of them? Well, I got that youngest boy out there watching the sheep. We will not proceed until he gets here. Go get him. And so Samuel's offering sacrifices in various places. What are the purpose of those sacrifices? They can be of some nature, specifically praise or thanksgiving offerings did not necessarily have to come to the tabernacle. Their gifts did. They had to be brought into the priestly tribe, the, the Aaronic priestess, not really, but uh, the, the tribe Levi, not just the Levites, they had their own income, but for the sacrifices, they were brought to the priests. And so we find that those priests were scattered around Israel. They weren't just concentrated in Jerusalem. And so 
uh, it is preferable that you make your uh, atonement sacrifices, and those are demanded at the tabernacle. But you have to have this prophet, priest, individual involved. And we find that uh, going on uh, in the period of the judges. We see it going on in the period of David as well. Uh, that when there is a particular victory or a particular uh, work of God, what do they do to offer their thanksgiving? They offer a sacrifice right there on the spot. Remember David goes up, and where does he offer a sacrifice to stop the, um, uh, the, the judgment on the people, the, the curse on the people because he numbered, because of his numbering? Well, he didn't do it at the tabernacle. He goes up what is going to be the temple mountain. There he offers a sacrifice. He buys the place. He takes, buys the oxen, the cart, everything, the, or not the cart, the uh, mill, and uh, offers a sacrifice right there to stop the, the judgment of God on his people. And so we find that there are many times that there are sacrifices in various places. When the Bible talks about these, the concern is that we are beginning a step towards neglecting the sacrifices that should be going on only at the tabernacle. And those are very specific, very important ones. And so sins offerings and things along that line should be going to, to the tabernacle. Uh, I just want to share with you that in the course of this, Solomon's going to learn something. And maybe one of the first evidences of God giving him wisdom um, isn't necessarily the account of the two women and the one baby. Maybe it's verse 15. Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, offered up burnt offerings, offered peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. I would contend to you that this is the first evidence of godly wisdom. The first evidence that God had done a work in Solomon's heart and mind and given him wisdom that we talked about on Sunday morning last week that begins by trusting in the Lord and the fear of the Lord that brings understanding. The first evidence of that is Solomon's like, well, I'm in the wrong place. The first evidence of his wisdom isn't the judgment about whose child this was. The first evidence of his wisdom is that I got, I'm in the wrong place. I need to get back to Jerusalem. I need to get my body, my worship, in the right sphere. I need to put it in the right place. And it's not up here in the high places just because it's popular and this is the place everyone sees. This is the place everyone who is anybody goes there. No, I want to go somewhere. And, and frankly, let's just be honest. The tabernacle is kind of... It's not very impressive. It's a tent. It's an elaborate tent. And it's not very big. It would fit inside this building. Half this building. It would fit inside half this building. And so the Ark of the Covenant would be right near that wall and... And the holy place, um, not the holy holy, holy holy is around the Ark of the Covenant. The holy place is here where you have the table of shewbread and the altar of incense and the, and the lampstand. And then you're out here, and right out here is the courtyard of the sacrifice. I mean, this is it. Not very impressive. Not compared to what's going to be built in this book with the temple. 
And so it's kind of, you know, i got to go down to the tent of the Lord. Yes, I'm going to go to the tabernacle. Because God has given me a wisdom, and that wisdom begins with, well, it's not just I need to obey Dad and follow and, and fulfill his expectations. I have a Heavenly Father who has revealed himself to me. And I'm going to fulfill his expectations. And this is the beginning of real wisdom. Not just uh, smarts or, or worldly wisdom, but real wisdom. And so, yes, we could take issue with how would God come to a man who is up there on the hill. Well, we could take issue with God on this fact, but the fact is that we benefit tremendously by the grace of God that overlooks aspects of worship that, that God commands us that we neglect. And he still chooses to come in and bless us based upon not the letter of the law, but based upon the heart of the worshiper. You love the Lord, and I'm trying to do the right thing. Does that mean that you, because you love the Lord and try and do the right thing, that you have a mature wisdom in following after God? No, those are not the same. Uh, you can love the Lord and think you're going to follow him and still be ignorant of how to do it. You can still have uh, little closets of your heart that you haven't let him into. Uh, you can still be following after the populous, popular mode of worship and the, and the trends of the day. That's basically what Solomon was doing. He was just worshiping according to the trends of his day. And then realize, well, I'm going to leave this fancy high place where everybody can see and everyone's going to worship. I'm going to leave the crowd. Solomon walks away from the crowd. And by God's revelation, this is wisdom. God reveals something to you. Oh, I need to be doing it in the right place, not just with the right heart. I need to be doing it the right way. And he comes before God, and I want you to notice the first offering he gives up. The first offering, it says, he offered up a burnt offering, then he offered up peace offerings, and then he made a feast. And I would contend that most burnt offerings were to deal with sin. <laughs> Solomon says, oh, I, I, I've been doing it wrong. Now, can God still come in when you're in a condition of not following precisely how he wants you to worship? Can he still come and work? Yes, but that work is going to generally start with what action of the Holy Spirit? Conviction. And if you don't respond to conviction, where are you going to go? Because that's, I think, if you, if you don't start with conviction, responding to conviction of the Holy Spirit, how much more can God work with you? He can't. You love the Lord, but you want to do it your way. You want to do it the popular way. We're going to go where the crowds are. We're going to go and do it according to what makes us feel good. Or I, Why was Solomon doing this? It doesn't tell us. It just says he was. We can put all kinds of conjecture on there. Um, he just didn't think it was that wrong. I have a lot of people tell me that. Well, is it wrong? Well, if you know to do right and don't do it, to you it is sin, the Bible says. Does that mean that for someone who doesn't know to do that, that for them it's sin? Not necessarily. 
Or maybe, but God, in his grace and mercy, looks past that and realizes there's an immaturity there. There is a lack of, of commitment to God, to his word, that requires some work of God. And aren't you glad God does that? Wouldn't it be a horrible thing if you didn't do everything just right, that God just rejects you offhand? And didn't take into account your heart and the desire of your heart and the conditions of what you've been exposed to? And that's why it's a dangerous thing to be in a church like this. This is a dangerous church to be in. I'll just be honest with you. Uh, the reason is because you hear a lot more of God's word here than many churches. You know what happens when you hear all that truth? You have to answer for it. Are you going to obey it or disregard it? You see, the, I would have a serious problem with this, which I'm going to have later on in Solomon's life, if after having this dream, after having this encounter with God, that he just stayed up there and offered more sacrifices, but he didn't. He responded to God by humbling himself, leaving the crowds, leaving the high places, and going back to Jerusalem. And look what it says. It says, he stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. He went to where he was supposed to do, be. He offered a sacrifice, a burnt offering first, then a peace offering, and then he served his servants a feast. He didn't have, do you notice that? He made a feast for all his servants. Not for all the noblemen, not for all these other people. He had a feast for his servants. He was humbled by God up on that hill, the wrong hill, when he should have been in Jerusalem. And so he responds, and this is what God requires of you, is that he's going to bring you into a knowledge of the truth, convict you of that through the Holy Spirit, and in this case it was a dream, and then he's going to expect you to respond. If you don't respond by obedience, you can get as frustrated as you want with God and say, well, he didn't work in my life. Well, he did, but you didn't respond with obedience. You didn't respond by humbling yourself and saying, oh, I've been doing that wrong. Oh, I need to have this in my life. Oh, I need to have this in my worship, in my marriage, in my whatever. The more we get revealed of God's truth, the more we are now held accountable that if you don't do that, it's a sin. Uh, but I'm not going to transfer that onto a lot of other people. But I might transfer it onto you that I would never transfer on another church because I know what you've been taught. So when I go to places, other countries, or even other areas of this country, I don't sit there and, and judge them by what I have been teaching. What the, I've been, I, I want to examine them based upon what they have been taught in their church. What's this pastor been teaching his people? Because they don't always get very much. They're, they're sometimes all they're going to get is the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, and it's not going to develop mature Christians because they're just getting milk every day and never any meat. And that's all they're going to be responsible for. And but when we have this revelation, when God comes in and reveals himself in the manner that he does to Solomon, the next step is, I'm going to respond. I'm either going to ignore it, or I'm going to change according to it. I'm going to, I'm going to 
humble myself and I'm going to make myself accountable to this new revelation. And so if you hear something here and you say, well, that, that was, I never thought about that, or I hadn't heard that, or this is different than what I've, and the Spirit convicts, and you go home and nothing changes, well, that's a great tragedy. It's a great tragedy. I don't know how you can make any kind of claim against God from that point forward. In His grace, He revealed His knowledge to you through His servants, and you didn't respond, and what does He owe you now? How much more grace? Yet, week after week, or month after month, year after year, because you love the Lord, and but you haven't really opened up your whole heart to him to, to expose yourself and humble yourself fully to him. Um, there, there are these pockets of your life that you're going to hold on to. You're going to cling to it your way. But Solomon doesn't respond that way. He could, and he could have an argument that all of us would agree with. Here I am on the high place. I just get done offering all these sacrifices, and God, at the high place, after all my sacrifices, honors me with this dream and this great offer. So it must prove, what? That what I did was right. You see, that's how you and I think. That's how men think. But Solomon, because he was invested with biblical godly wisdom, recognized God has done this in spite of what I've done, not because of what I've done. And let me share with you, that is what grace is. Grace is God coming to you in spite of and not because of. Do you understand that? If God comes to you because of, then your works have earned it. And so many times we think of God's revelation and God's God's blessing as because of instead of in spite of. But when you say the grace of God has been given to me by God's grace this has come, you are saying in spite of me, God has been good. If you say because of this, 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 God has done this, 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 then you're saying because of this is something you have earned and now it's not of grace. And so when I enjoy the goodness of God in my life, I recognize that some aspects are directly God's grace because they are fully in spite of, and yet other aspects I recognize are just the natural consequences of wisdom that comes from where? God's grace. But we give God the glory. And so we would look at this and we could almost rationally say, well, I should keep offering, I, I, we should do what Jacob did, right? What did he do at Bethel? God gives him a dream. This is a special place. I'm going to build an altar right here. This is the place. And he calls it Bethel. This is the place to meet with God. Well, Jacob was a pretty immature believer at that point, And he's not going to develop until later, but... That's why he's described as wrestling with God. <laughs> Solomon's not wrestling with God. He's going, whoa, okay. And he humbles himself, and the very next act of Solomon is, I'm going to go to this little tent 
somewhere in town, and it's just going to be me and the ark of God. I'm going to offer sin, burnt offerings, then peace offerings, and then I'm going to surround myself and give a party for my servants. I'm going to serve my servants with this feast. It, it just screams of humbling yourself to God's revelation. And this is, I think, the power of this passage. It is not that we should come to it and say, if Solomon had not, wasn't doing anything wrong, we'd say, oh, because he was such a good guy, such a good king, God came and said, ask whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. That's wages. That's something you've earned. That's because of your works. But I think purposefully, God has inserted these two aspects that he has already married a Gentile woman. He has already offered sacrifices in the wrong place. Um, whether or not for the wrong motives, it doesn't look like it's wrong motives, but out of ignorance or out of whatever, he thought that's where he should go. It's the, it's the, it's the most popular place. Everyone else is going there. That means that what happens in the dream isn't because of, but in spite of. And that means it's grace. It's mercy. And that should humble us. Because God is doing these things in spite of, not because of. And therefore, I recognize, boy, I don't deserve any of this. Um, I have made a huge mistake. What am I doing up here? Yes, it's popular. This is the happening place, and this is where all the bigwigs come with all their sacrifices. I mean, look what he sacrificed up there. I mean, this wasn't... Uh, he offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. A thousand! He took a thousand critters up there and sacrificed them on that altar. Uh, this was the high place. Solomon's response is, what am I doing here? I need to go back to the place I should have been at all the way along. It was in spite of, not because of. And that brings us to the idea of mercy. And this is going to characterize Solomon's reign because it characterizes every reign of men of God who are mortal and weak. David had his weaknesses, but he loved the Lord. He fell into sin multiple times. And when God confronted him, he confessed it. And he, he turned from it. He didn't want to repeat that sin ever again. He did whatever God required of him. He humbled himself before the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And when you back, look back over all of these kings, you will find, well... They weren't perfect, uh, but what characterizes them is that when they're confronted by the prophet, when they're confronted with revelation, when they're confronted with the blessings of God, their response is always to humble themselves if they are truly a righteous king. Solomon is going to make some huge mistakes. Wow, that was emphatic. Huge mistakes forward, isn't he? Huge things. And we look at how can God keep blessing him? Well, he didn't. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about the, or was that last Sunday night, 
We talked about the idea of, of, um, of judgment, that, that in Eastern idea of judgment isn't just your lifetime or your experiences, but it involves your whole nation, and sometimes it involves your lineage. Well, what happened to the nation once Solomon passed? What happened to his son, Rehoboam? It was all this glorious empire built around the wisdom of Solomon just broke away, just tore asunder. Like that, almost, it seems like. So, there were consequences. There was a penalty. But God honored Solomon because he loved the Lord and he's going to have a divided heart later on because of these actions he's taken, which brings us to the first one in the list. And it begins us down this road that's going to be problematic for Solomon, the balance of his years. Um, But again, it is a reminder that God blesses in spite of, not because of, uh, in these conditions where our heart is right, but we make poor choices. He loved the Lord. He was demonstrating that by keeping his father's instructions. Dad says this, dad said that, dad said that, I'm going to do what dad says. Dad's gone, dad's dead, we buried him. I'm still going to do what Dad said. He said, take care of these guys, to watch out for these guys. I'm going to do all that. And I'm going to love the Lord with all my heart. I'm going to keep the statutes. Um, And he has every intention of doing that. Uh, And so that's the, the, the overriding nature of his heart. And because of that, God comes in and says, well, when you do wrong, I'll correct you. Just like a father who loves his son corrects him. You do wrong, I'm not going to throw you out. I'm going to correct you. If you don't respond to correction, now we have some other issues and I can reject you. Which is why it's so important we respond properly when God corrects us. When we are encountered with the revelation of God, which we see in Solomon here. And so Solomon does enter into a very important treaty with the king of Egypt. Um, It is the best place to start. You might say, well, why? Because this secures his southern border for one thing. Uh, And by the way, it expanded his southern border quite south, much farther south than modern Israel, um, way down into a region that is today part of Saudi Arabia and part of it is Egypt today. uh, Because we know that Solomon went all the way down and identified the crossing point of the Red Sea and set up pillars there to mark it. And so that all the way down into there, we have the Salmonic influence. And so he secures this with Egypt. And this is very important that Solomon's kingdom was not to be global. He understood that. The promised land had a parameter And what is fascinating is if the nations around Israel understood that, that you can easily make peace with Israel because they don't want more than what is theirs. Solomon doesn't want to rule the world. He has influence in the the world at that time that stretches well beyond the borders of Israel, but he has no desire to go over and take over Lebanon because that's not our land. 
He has no desire to go over there and take over that region and that re Egypt and all because that's not our land. This is the inheritance that God has given us, and I can function within that inheritance. And so Egypt is not part of the promised land of Israel. And so the treaty is not a problem at all. The marriage, a little bit of a difficulty. Okay, but I want you to notice that even Solomon understood that there was some error there. How do I know that? Because it says he kept his wife in a certain place, and he didn't really, it says he kept her, uh, brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house, the house of the Lord, and the wall around Jerusalem. He was like, um, well, I'm going to bring you here, but I'm going to build all this other stuff, and then we're going to take care of putting you somewhere else. This is just temporary. You just have a temporary domicile here. Uh, it's really not where we're going to put you permanently. And so he understood the sensitivity of this to the commandments of God. And so he takes an action that, that uh, the, the writer of the recorder of 1 Kings uh, wants to stipulate that he was careful in how he introduced this gal. He's going to bring her into the city of David, um, which is on the southern region. Uh, he's, he's, he hasn't built his own house. He hasn't built the temple. He hasn't built the wall. She's going to stay there until those things are accomplished, and then we're going to deal with some of the things. Unfortunately, by the time those things are accomplished, he has added to his number of wives. But the evidence here is that he understood there was some issues involved and he was taking some sort of action to address that on some level. Some people think that action is sufficient enough that he didn't have real relations with her at this point until she be proselytized to, to Judaism. It doesn't really say that. Uh, we, we can postulate that. We can, we can insert that to satisfy our own interests, but it doesn't say that. And so whatever action he's taking here it is evident that um, uh, the author of 1 Kings wants us to recognize that Solomon even understood that there were some sensitive issues at, to bear when bringing in the Pharaoh's daughter. But let me remind you also, just I remind you about the sacrifice of the high places, that this is not unheard of either. I want to remind you of a guy named Joseph. Who was his wife? She was an Egyptian, full-bred, blown Egyptian. And his sons were of both Egyptian and Hebrew blood. And God blessed both of his sons with equal inheritance in Israel so that we have not just one tribe of Joseph, but the two tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. And Joseph's wife was an Egyptian. And so these things God has allowed for. He has in the past uh, understood the geopolitical necessity of it and allowed it and still blessed. Just as we have talked about God's blessed um, Jacob having four wives uh, and going into his wife's handmaidens, uh, just as God blessed a lot of action that we would take issue with today, um, God recognizes that we are dirt. <laughs> he knows what we're made out of. He knows what we're about. He knows our weaknesses, and he tolerates them. 
That's his grace. That's his mercy. But he also recognizes that they are a violation of his holiness and they require an action. That's why Solomon does burnt offerings. That's why we have the Day of Atonement. That's why we have Jesus Christ. It's because just be, God can't overlook them forever and entirely. He's going to extend grace and mercy, but it requires a foundation. That foundation is faith in him, fear the Lord, trusting in the Lord, and his sacrifice, that God takes care of those issues. So is this a mistake? Um, politically, no. Morally, uh, allowable. Just as much as it's allowable to have plural wives, but it causes a lot of problems in all these families. It caused problems in Samuel's parents' home, where you had wives fighting each other over who had kids and who didn't. Which also happened, of course, in Abraham's household, and Jacob's household, on, on, on. But God never says, thou shalt not. And so, uh, whether this gal converted to uh, Israel, uh, much like many of the Egyptians that left Israel, remember there is a lot of genetic material in Israel that is Egyptian. Because there's a mixed multitude that left Egypt. Many Egyptians went with Israel out of the land of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea with them. And uh, so there was a natural inclination to have this treaty formed. And remember, this is a king that is not going to be a king of war. He's going to be king characterized by treaties. Because he has expanded the borders, his father expanded the borders as far as they needed to go. And now Solomon says, I'm no threat to any of you. I'm no threat to you down there. I'm no threat to Lebanon. I'm, I'm not a threat because you're not our promised land. This is it. This is our promised land. And God can bless us if we are in our place worshiping him rightly. And so I just want to deal with those issues right up front and to get out of our mind the idea of how can God do this to someone who's doing that well is God gracious and merciful or are we just a works people and thus we should also be sharing that with one another with the expectation of other Christians do they have to walk in step with what our expectations are to incur God's blessing No, God can extend them grace, and so can we, given the opportunity. We can still be gracious, we can still overlook things, and and, uh, to a degree, until finally we have to realize, well, this is wrong, and you know it's wrong, and now you've been confronted, and you don't do anything about it. Uh, When we were in India, we were distraught. It was so disturbing when we went there and found out that two of the orphans that we were supporting weren't orphans. They were the pastor's kids. And, we were, and they came to us and said, well, and I was like, why would you do this? Why would you lie to us about these kids? And Pastor Reddy was ashamed, and he just looked at me and he said, well, the mission told us it was easier to raise money for children than for pastors. And so they've been identifying pastor's kids as orphans. And so 
we had a couple of kids there where we were supporting as orphans and we were praying for them and everything. And then we come and we show up there and that's when they decide to tell us, well, they're actually Pastor Phillip's two kids. What a disappointment. So do we just stomp out of there and say, we want nothing to do with you? Well, that was my first inclination. I'll be honest with you. It's like, how could they do this to us? But then we say, well, explain what happened. And they said, well, the mission told us to do this. Because you can get more money. I was like, since when do we make moral decisions, ethical decisions based upon money? This is the ministry. This isn't business. Even if it's business and you're a Christian, you don't do it that way. And they apologized and we worked it right up through the mission agency. And so we don't do business with the mission agency. You know why? They didn't set it right. They tried to, guess what? Justify themselves. They tried to justify themselves, cover it, and, oh, no, that, uh, we don't know who that's, blah, 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 blah. So we stopped dealing with the mission agency. I said, I'll deal with you guys directly because uh, you said it right. You acknowledged what you did was wrong. You corrected it. You um, have now come clean and you want to do it right. So what did we do? Well, we sent, uh, we sent them more money. <laughs> Not less. We sent them more. Because we support pastors more than we support orphans. Even two orphans in the same house. So Pastor, Re- Pastor Philip was getting $60 a month because he had these two girls that they were presenting as an orphans that weren't. He was getting $60 a month towards his ministry. And we were like, we support the pastors $120 a month. He would be getting twice as much if... And so that's what he gets now. Well, it's more now, I think, 130 or something. Um, and so... Uh, we sent them more money. Why? Because they came clean. Solomon is receiving God's mercy. He's not the perfect guy. This is not because of his sacrifice, not because of his treaty, but in spite of those, and he evidences that immediately following. I'm going to make it right. I'm going to go where I should be worshiping. I'm going to get this right. That is wisdom because that's the fear of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this account and Lord we look at these sometimes backwards and we thank you for this evidence of your grace and mercy toward that king in that day and his response by humbling himself before you and Lord our prayer is that you might similarly bless us not because of but in spite of that we might love you with all of our heart and keep your statutes as much as as we are humanly capable of and when we fail that you might correct us and rebuke us and we we might humble ourselves and acknowledge it that we might show that same kind of grace and mercy to one another and that we might also be patient in waiting for you to convict and instead of taking it upon ourselves to convict others that we might wait upon you to bring them to maturity and to wait for them to respond by faith believing to obedience And we just thank you for the work you're doing in our midst and for your actions of grace in revealing your truth to us uh, day by day as we respond by faith to them. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.